Dispatch is a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues and I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Drone strikes are an increasingly common feature of modern warfare, and there have been numerous discussions in the academic literature and beyond of the effectiveness of drone strikes, the morality of the policy, and the larger implications of the United States' growing reliance on drone strikes as part of a broader counterterrorism strategy. But for all this debate, there's been very little research into the psychology that surrounds drone strikes. Now, two academics out of George Washington University are compiling some exceedingly interesting and politically relevant research into the psychological forces that are shaping America's drone policy. Julia McDonald and Jacqueline Schneider recently published a fascinating paper in the Journal of Conflict Resolution that examines the relationship between a president's risk tolerance and his, or possibly her, preference for using drones. They also are in the midst of research into why soldiers in combat prefer or not manned versus unmanned air support and the conditions under which the general American public is more likely or not to support drone strikes. It's cutting-edge and cross-disciplinary research and just fascinating stuff. And on the line with me to discuss this research and its broader implications is the co-author of these studies, Jacqueline Schneider. She's a PhD candidate in residence at the Institute for Conflict and Security Studies at George Washington University. And we have a lively conversation about why she and her co-author decided to study the psychology of drone strikes. Uh, just a quick note before we start, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. This kind of content, this kind of episode in which I discuss some academic research with the author of that research is a new kind of content I'd like to do more of in 2016. I've done one episode similar to this one in which I discuss with a political scientist, Richard Hasner, his article about why countries are increasingly building border fences and walls. So if you've recently read or perhaps you've written a research paper that you think can be disentangled for a podcast episode in a way that would be relevant and interesting to this audience, just send me a note. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and uh, get in touch with me. And now here is my conversation with Jacqueline Schneider. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. McDonald and I, co-author and I, we had a meeting in uh, about April of 2013 and we sat down and there was a lot of news going on um, about the use of drone strikes. And, you know, we, we started talking about it. We thought, gosh, I feel like this discussion isn't grounded in any of the factual reality of the capabilities of these weapon systems. What is going on? Why are people so intrigued by these platforms? Why do they garner so much public attention? And we thought, I think there's something psych 
psychological going on here above and beyond the actual capability of the weapon. Um, and that's where we really started. And we sat down and we thought we, in one paper we were going to look at presidents and ground force commanders and JTACs calling in airstrikes and the public. And that has since devolved into a series of papers and potentially a, a book looking at how the United States in general creates its preferences for the ways of war and unmanned aerial vehicles in particular. Uh, and so your first installation of this collection that has been you know, peer reviewed and, and published was your study on uh, presidential risk tolerance in the use of manned versus unmanned uh, vehicles. Is that right? Yeah, we thought the president was a good place to start. I mean, there's a lot of existing literature um, about how presidents affect the means by which we fight wars. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, for example, is famous for being uh, you know, very hands-on with the weapons that he chooses. And so we thought, well, this is interesting, and yet nobody has really looked at this before. Why don't we start here? And we went ahead. Uh, we knew that there were some contents analysis methods that we could use to quantitatively provide a measure of risk. Um, and then we could take that and look at how does that correlate with the use of man and unmanned for Obama and Bush, who both had access to the technology. So can we actually talk about that methodology uh, for a moment? Oh, because sure. um, you use what's called a verb in context system, which is something I wasn't familiar with until I read your book. And I suppose it's probably quite common in psychological uh, literature and academic work on psychology, but it's probably not something that a lot of international affairs generalists are, are aware of. <laughs> yeah. It's, like I had uh, to Google it. I, I, had not, I had not heard of this system before. So yeah, what, what, what is it? What, what is it exactly? So what it is, is it's a, it's a theory of language. So there's a theory uh, that has been vetted by a series of different political psychologists, led mostly by Stephen Walker, who is formerly out of Arizona State University. And there's a theory that the verbs that we use uh, can be, um, we can take those verbs from language that's used, whether it be speeches or off-the-cuff responses, and we can understand how people view, how individuals view control over different subjects, whether they view things positively or negatively, um, whether they use different types of verbs, which would suggest that they have uh, different risk propensities. And so what it is, it's a theory of how verbs that we use in everyday language translate to political action. And it like, um, holds up, right? Like this has been tested in the academic literature yeah, over time. Yeah, so it's actually been vetted quite a bit within the political psychology literature. It hasn't been, um, you know, this doesn't publish generally in like international security because a lot of people don't believe content analysis has any validity. Um, but content analysis has been used over and over again by psychologists as a valid method to determine what people's belief systems are. And so this is kind of, we were applying a psychology method basically to something that is generally very hard security. So that's kind of a new niche for us is taking, marrying this, the methods of psychology with the very hard realities of weapons and security and international relations. And that's really what stood out for me for, for the paper was this combination of, of different fields to present some new and interesting uh, analysis. Um, so, so can you, I guess, kind of briefly go through what did you find? Like, so, so, or, or did you just like collect or, and, uh, a bunch of speeches from Bush and Obama and, and compare them using this content analysis? 
Yeah, so we did. What we first did is we took an aggregate um, of speeches and off-the-cuff responses about the conflict in Afghanistan spanning their entire presidencies. And we took that and then we coded it for what the different types of verbs are. So um, is the verb a positive verb? Is it a negative verb? What does that mean to be a positive or negative verb? So a positive verb would be a verb that says, um, you know, support. I support something. I promise something. I aid something. Those are positive verbs. Whereas negative verbs are punishment verbs. I will punish you. I will strike you. I will threaten you. And based on whether it's a present tense verb or a future tense verb also implies whether it's a threat in the future or whether it's something that, you know, that, that is happening at that moment. So all of those, whether it's positive, negative, whether it's future, whether it's present, these all go into the coding so that we get an idea of the, the psycholo- psychological analyses that are going on behind these decisions. So we, I think there were 335 plus verbs in the Bush a sample, um, and I want to say about 160 in the Obama sample. Um, and so we coded all of those verbs, and what we found was that um, they did have a statistically significant difference between their overall risk orientation. So Bush was overall risk acceptant, whereas Obama was overall risk averse. Uh, further, what we found was that Bush was risk acceptant towards doing too much, and Obama was risk averse to doing too much. Which, Which is was, sort of intuitive if you right, right, study yeah. foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is it kind of validates the content's analysis. You're like, yes, yes, okay, this is, you know, we have space validity here. This makes sense in general of who we think these people are. Um, and so then we went a little bit further into these operational code measures, and we found that Obama in general is less certain about the future, has uh, believes he has less control over the future, whereas Bush is more certain, believes that he has more control. That also seems to fit very nicely into this narrative about risk. None of that is really counterintuitive. Um, so we delved a little further and disaggregated the measures because those speeches and off-the-cuff responses were over you know, a period of eight years in the Bush case. Um, And so we wanted to see, well, are there significant changes? Because there are theories within political science and within political psychology that risk is fixed and it's fixed to our personality. Um, But there are other theories that risk is actually situationally dependent and that context very much matters. And this is kind of the prospect theory side of of risk assessment. Um, So we disaggregated, uh, we used three disaggregations. We actually did a bunch more, but these were the ones we thought were the most interesting, uh, which was a disaggregation for the uh, conflict, so the stages of the actual conflict in Afghanistan, a disaggregation for electoral cycles, and then a disaggregation for SECDEF, because we had a theory that maybe some of the secretaries of defenses played a a large role in the decision-making here. And, what and we they found, shared a secretary of defense. For right. A while. That, that was actually that was actually very useful for us because we thought, well, they shared it if it's possible that they have the same measure with both in the sign periods where they both had gates, then maybe it really is all about gates, you know? And um, we didn't find that, um, which was interesting. And um, so what we did see with Bush, which was counterintuitive, is that here is somebody that we always think of as being a cognitively rigid thinker and someone who doesn't change his mind very often. And yet Bush's risk, uh, his his perception of risk changed with the situation, with the context. Whereas Obama 
we saw almost no change. It was actually remarkable how little change there was in Obama's measurement of his, his risk acceptance. He was risk averse the entire time. And it was really very fascinating that despite changes in context, whether it be electoral or um, the campaign in Afghanistan or changes in SECDEFs, that he was very much the same uh, over time, which was really fascinating because we generally think of him as being less cognitively rigid as than Bush. Hmm. And so what then does this bear on, on whether or not these uh, presidents were more or less likely to use drone strikes? So we make the argument that this correlates, um, this correlates very closely with also the increase in, in drone strikes under Obama. Um, and it's something that, that we are continuing to research. We'd like to look, for example, into cyber um, and other unmanned types of technologies to see whether there's a similar kind of risk correlation here. But what we seem to find here, and it works with Bush as well, is that as the presidents are more risk averse, they are also more likely to prefer unmanned systems over manned systems. And so the real takeaway for both foreign policy and international relations is that the risk proclivities of decision makers will matter to the means by which we choose to wage war. And that will have significant consequences for military effectiveness, for foreign policy effectiveness, um, and, and generally the way states interact. So could you, um, you know, find a whole bunch of Hillary Clinton speeches and run it yes. through your system and then deduce whether or not Hillary Clinton will be more or less likely to continue the, the drone wars? You could, yeah, you could definitely do that. Um, I mean, the, the great thing with this VIX, um, the verbs and context system of contents analysis is you can use it on everything, um, on any, any, you know, large data source that you have that has a lot of conversation, um, which is, holds a lot of promise in the future for big data analysis. And in the past, this work has generally been done by hand, which is very labor intensive. But there have been uh, advancements in uh, coding um, and the algorithms that we can use for big data analysis that imply that we might be able to use some of these theories, which have been generally in the political psychology realm, for larger big data analytics, which is great because big data analytics have been missing some of the, the psychology in the past. Um, they've been really looking for theories of how language translates to political action. I mean, is it possible that um, Obama's proclivity for drones over Bush's is just a result of the fact that, you know, drones, the, the technology has, has evolved yeah. since uh, the, is, the Obama administration came to power? This was the first hypothesis that we came into it with. We thought, well, obviously Obama's going to be, you know, have a greater proclivity for these weapon systems. They're more available during his time in office and they're better. But we would have expected to see that at least a slight shift uh, upward as he has his inventory increases and as the capabilities on these weapon systems increases. I mean, you see a, a move from a largely unarmed ISR platform to the Reaper, which is much more capable than its earlier Predator versions during the Obama administration. And yet you see that it still remains static over time. Uh, it might explain some of the, the Bush decisions, um, but we couldn't, we, because there was no change in Obama's measure, we couldn't correlate that with the technology. Uh, so is there like the assumption in, in when you're going to this research that manned uh, attacks are more accurate or more likely to succeed than unmanned attacks, but 
the advantage of unmanned uh, attacks is that you know there's no risk at all to to human beings, uh, American human beings. I think that's the general. No, I know that's the the general. American public views the drones in that way. We actually just completed a survey, um, a representative U.S. survey that indicates that in general the U.S. public believes that drones are more accurate than their manned uh, counterparts. But it's not actually true. The, the accuracy of the weapon is based on the missile that comes off the weapon, not the airframe itself. So the airframe is going to generate the same level of accuracy as an F-16 or any anything else that can fire in Hellfire. The the actual accuracy of of the strike is based on whether it's a Hellfire or a laser guided bomb or a GPS guided bomb or a dumb bomb. So that's kind of a misnomer that's out there about the accuracy. Um, in general, the systems that, the targeting systems that are used to generate coordinates are going to be accurate, the same level of accuracy across airframes. So it's really no more or less accurate than no. uh, the, the, uh, one method or the other. It really just depends on, on the missile. So why not just exclusively use uh, drones? Why, why wouldn't that be preferential? Well, Drones actually carry a lot less weaponry than manned, um, and so the, so there's a lot more manned platforms, right? We have F-15s, B-1s, B-2s, B-52s. You have a huge slew of airframes on the manned side that can drop a, a large variety of weapons for a lot of different types of situations and a lot more tonnage in general. Whereas a Reaper, which is going to be the most capable airframe in the current UAV or RPA or drone inventory, is, is only going to be able to carry a minimal amount of weapons. And it's generally going to be um, either a Hellfire or a series of 500-pound bombs, whether those be laser-guided or GPS-guided. So because of that, MAND is often uh, has a lot more options to provide the ground personnel. Um, we also recently conducted a survey experiment of the JTACs, the individuals that call in airstrikes. And we asked them, we said, we gave them a series of different scenarios and asked them whether they preferred manned or unmanned. And we had a huge preference for manned. Um, and what was really interesting is we saw almost a 90% preference for manned in situations where we told the JTACs, the guys calling in airstrikes, that they were under fire and their lives were at risk. And in the commentary, we were shocked because the commentary wasn't really about the capability of the weapon. It was about the human interaction. And they use words like warm, fuzzy, and um, relationship, and feeling. And it was really a very emotional response to wanting a human. And even though they knew a human is actually uh, flying the UAV, they wanted the human that they felt was in their um, in their AOR that was... That had this had some level of risk that was invested with them. So it is really it's it's very interesting how these preferences are derived. So that's that's so interesting. So so the actual soldiers on the ground who have the ability to call in airstrikes to protect themselves overwhelmingly prefer um, manned air air platforms like planes yes. or helicopters. Uh, the public, though the the general American public, you're saying overwhelmingly disapproves 
of, of that method over drone strikes. Well, this is really interesting. We did a series, we, after performing the survey experiments on the JTAX, we thought, well, let's see what the public has to say. So we also performed a survey experiment on the public. And what we found is that quite often the public does not differentiate between manned and unmanned platforms. So a lot of times when we think that they have preferences for unmanned, or preferences for manned, they really are just talking about what they feel like, what they feel about airstrikes in general. And this is especially applicable when we talk about preferences for airstrikes um, when there is legal precedent and when there isn't. Um, what, they, they, what, do you, what do you mean by that? So we gave them two scenarios. One scenario where individuals, where there is a domestic legal precedent. So, hey, law says that you can do this airstrike. Uh, and then we gave them another scenario that where law is unclear about whether the airstrike is legal or not. And we gave them to them with domestic. And then also, hey, international law says this is okay. International law isn't clear about it. And what we found is that people didn't really differentiate between whether they preferred manned or unmanned in those scenarios. But they did have clear preferences about whether they supported air, airstrikes with both platforms versus no airstrikes at all. And so whereas most of the conversation about whether drone strikes are ethical or not, um, it talks specifically about the unmanned platform, um, well, we could probably generalize to say that most of what the public feels about the legality or the, uh, the, ethic, the ethical implications of drone strikes could be extended to manned airstrikes as well. Um, so... What are some of like the broader foreign policy implications of all of your research put together and from what you're finding? I know some of the research is still being tested and, and still being vetted. Um, but from what you have deduced so far, what are like the, the big foreign policy implications for, for U.S. foreign policy or for world, world affairs more broadly? Well, I think what's very interesting, especially looking at the public opinion results, is that the U.S. public is incredibly casualty averse. Now, this is something we know, right? This has come up in literature quite a bit. But in the past, technology hasn't been able to shield human lives as, you know, as well as it can with an unmanned system. An unmanned system shields U.S. lives 100% of the time. And that's remarkable. And so what we're finding is that where in the past, democracies used to go all in on conflict. They didn't go in on conflict very much, but when they did, they went all in and they won decisively. That maybe democracies are more willing to do these small-scale conflicts if they can shield themselves from casualties. And so this type of technology and this preference for unmanned may actually increase the chances that um, the public supports limited conflict. Um, but only supports limited conflict. And if that's the case, then what international relations theory would tell us is that when the public only supports limited conflict, there's also less a chance, uh, a lower probability that those democracies will win in large-scale conflicts, or if those small-scale conflicts escalate to large-scale conflicts. Because the democracies won't be willing to like put the boots on the ground necessary right. to, to actually win. Right, right. And so this is something that, that Julia and I, my co-author and I, are exploring now, is whether this casualty aversion and this ability to use unmanned in order to satisfy this aversion, the risk aversion, um, whether that will change whether democracies are, are less effective in general in conflict, and whether they opt into conflict more, right. uh, more often, you know? Right. They're more willing um, to start wars, but less likely to win wars. Yeah, that would that would be the that would be the fantastic finding. 
<laughs> that would be a very interesting finding if that's what we end up finding. Well, this is so interesting. I, I'm so glad that I came across uh, your study. Uh, this is great. I'm, I'm fascinated by this, by this just sort oh, of marriage so of, of psychology <laughs> to international relations. Are you, are you a psychologist or are you a political scientist or, no, or both? I'm a, you know, or? Julia and I are both political scientists that have been trained in political psychology methods. So um, we've traditionally studied foreign policy decision making and that uses a lot of the psychological methods. So I work very closely with psychologists and with the letter, literature in psychology uh, to marry it to what's going on in international relations and specifically security. Well, fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. This is great. Oh, yeah. It was wonderful. It's always exciting to talk about your research. Oh, and I didn't mention this earlier and I probably should have. The public opinion work that we did was funded by the Center for New American Security. And okay. as my funder, I probably should have said that earlier. Okay. Yeah, and it should be forthcoming. The, the results of the public opinion survey will be forthcoming in the next few months out of the Center for New American Security. Okay. So they'll be publishing that. All right. Thank you so much for listening. What a fascinating bit of research this is. I love going a little outside of my own comfort zone, delving into different areas of social science in which I am woefully, woefully unprepared and undereducated. So this was an education for me, at least. I hope it was for you guys as well. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.